Until um, fairly recently, uh, I helped lead a summer camp for um, Christian teenagers. And most of the time, it was a real joy. It was really good fun. It's good to work with teenagers because they can be very honest. Um, you, you understand, you realise when you're not really hitting the mark because uh, they will start texting or they will start flirting or, or they will just walk out and let you know what they're thinking. I guess if you're a teacher here this evening, you might be able to associate with that. Or even if you're a teenager. Um, there was one guy a few years ago who really stuck in my mind though and, and I think in some ways he was he was surprisingly less honest in the way that he, he dealt with us, the questions that he had. Um, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't have much time for this Jesus stuff. Uh, his parents basically had made him come along to camp uh, for more than one year. Uh, and his problem, though, was that he said he doubted the validity of the Bible. Can I trust the Bible? Why can I trust these words in front of me? Why do they have any kind of authority over me? Um, and that was a common question that we used to face on the camp from a number of people and so luckily this year we we'd sorted out a seminar to talk about the validity, the trustworthiness of the Bible uh, annoyingly and in hindsight it was an error because it was later in the week so we had a whole week of him saying well I, I don't believe it because I don't trust the Bible I don't, believe it, I don't trust the Bible anyway the seminar comes along uh, and I'm doing the seminar and, and he comes in uh, and he sits down and he gets the the handout, and we were looking at how internally you can trust the New Testament. It's written down by people who were there. It's written down by uh, folk who researched it, trying to give an orderly account, this kind of stuff. And then you can trust it from the outside as well, because there are uh, other documents from around the time um, that talk of Jesus. There are so many manuscripts that you can read, all this kind of stuff. He, he gets in, he sits down, he's got the handout in front of him. And he looks down at it, and he looks up at us, and he puts it down and he looks out. And it's fascinating. He didn't particularly care, actually, whether you could trust the Bible. His problem wasn't so much, uh, can I trust it? His problem was, I don't want it to tell me what to do. And so as soon as you start seeing that there are numerous manuscripts, that there's good reasons to trust the words we have in front of us, then you recognise his objections weren't historical or scientific, they were moral. He didn't want us to be able to say, this is the kind of thing you need to think about and listen to. This is the kind of manuscript, this is the kind of document you can trust. So he walked out. And John has said that kind of thing to us as we've been going through his Gospel. We've got it back in chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. My kids love creepy crawlies. It's, it's going into the forest and it's lifting up logs, all that kind of stuff. And these little creepy crawlies run around and scuffle off into the darkness again. These creatures suddenly exposed to the light and they zoom off, beetle back into the darkness, scared of what the sunshine is going to bring. And yet that's us, that's our hearts. The light shines on us, that the Bible's open and, and we run away and we hate it. Having someone tell us how to live, having someone tell us that we're, or show us that we're sinful. We don't like it. And so we, we run out of seminars because we're scared of what it will mean for us. Or we hide in the bushes with Adam and Eve as God comes to find them and says, what is it you've done? Why have you done that? Have you disobeyed the one rule that I gave you? 
And we stand shoulder to shoulder, the Bible says, with those who, who murder Jesus. That seems to be one of the key things in the passage that Johnny just read for us. John is underlining that, that all the world is culpable for the death of Jesus. If we were there, we would have longed to get rid of the light too. We would have dispensed with God's authority over us. You see these two halves of humanity in, in the passage, united around the cross. The, the Gentile Romans who flog and who murder and who torture Jesus, who mock him. And then the Jewish officials and the people who shout crucify, crucify. One, one pastor has famously said, the, the cross is proof positive that given the chance, man will murder his maker. A song we'll sing later puts it very well. It's, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And so you see in this passage, I think, the entirety of the human race culpable and guilty for the death of Jesus. And so his innocence, which is highlighted again and again and again, is in stark contrast. This is the entire spectrum of society baying for his blood, from the, the unnamed crowd member to the highest in the land. And there is Jesus, God's true king, and yet at this point, very alone, and very innocent, undeserving of death. So our first point for tonight, if it helps you and you like points and that kind of stuff, then uh, verse 1 to 7, remember we follow an innocent king. And we pick up the account where we left it last time. Uh, Jesus, clearly innocent, that's the sharp focus for us from John. We see Pilate, his human judge, convinced by Jesus' innocence, you get it three times in this section. Three times Pilate seeks a compromise because of Jesus' blamelessness. And three times the crowds and the officials bay for his blood. We had it once last week. Remember back in chapter 18 and verse 38, Pilate basically says, while it's Passover time, I will give you your king back. I find no basis for a charge against him. It's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release king of the Jews? No, they say. We get it this week, verse 1 to 5, Pilate flogs him and beats him and mocks him. And then he takes him outside and he says, well I think he's innocent, but, but look, is this enough? Surely you can forget about it now. And rather than the crowds being placated, they cry for more. Verse 6, as soon as the chief of priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And then thirdly and finally, verse 6 to 7, Pilate almost embarrassingly, you take him, you crucify him, I don't find any basis for a charge against him. It's bottom line, you do it. I, I don't want anything to do with it. John wants us to get that, that Jesus didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve to die. Now why does his innocence matter though? This isn't just... Isn't the kind of thing that the papers in our day love to get their hands on? It's, it's justice gone wrong. It's a, it's a genius. It's a guru. And, and yet, he was wrongly convicted. The crowds got their way. Uh, justice turned on its head. Such a shame. Bright young star. 
And yet look at him dying on a cross. His light was snuffed out too early. It's not that at all. Jesus' innocence matters for different reasons. It matters because of the Old Testament. Because of the stuff you get before John. Before the New Testament. It's, it's what his death is really about. The, the climactic part that it plays in God's plan for the world. There are lots we could say, but just two things for now to try and help you see that. Uh, firstly, Jesus is the Passover lamb. We, we got that way, way, way back in John's Gospel, right back in probably September, before some of you were born. Um, we saw John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and shouting, look, it's the lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. He's using the language of the Old Testament. Uh, and years later, John's words are so helpful for us. Here we find ourselves at a time immersed in a passing. Immersed with God's people who are remembering God rescuing his, his oppressed people from Egypt. They would, they would share together a, a meal of, of lamb and of bread. And it would remind them of God sparing his people, rescuing them. And then the animal dying would remind them of, of a substitution going on. Uh, in each house there would be a death at Passover time. It would either be an animal, a lamb, or it would be the firstborn son. And the Lord was very clear at this first Passover. He said, for this substitution to happen correctly, it must be an animal without defects. It can't be the runt. It can't be an animal with deformed legs. This must be an animal without defects. And here is Jesus, utterly without defect. Complete moral purity. Pilate says he is innocent. And John is saying to us, remember what John the Baptist said at the start. Here is the Passover lamb. Second one is the suffering servant. Um, let me read to you from Isaiah 53. Uh, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, talking of a king who would come, who would, who would come and die, willingly, silently, though he didn't deserve it. He would be oppressed, he would be judged. No one in his generation would stick up for him. He didn't deserve it. Passover lamb and the suffering servant. Yeah, I think it's more than God just kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. There's more going on now. Do you notice in both there's some sort of a swap happening with the Passover lamb and the suffering servant? John seems to have littered his account over the last few weeks with these little examples of, of what's really going on behind the scenes here. What is actually happening as Jesus goes to the cross. He wants us to see this swap happening. It matters that Jesus was innocent because he was punished for the sins of his people. We've already seen something of our culpability this evening as we stand shoulder to shoulder with those who bathe for his blood 
as we hide from the light, as we would murder our maker, because we don't want him to have authority over us. And yet at the cross, our sin and God's anger against our sin is taken on him. He's, he's the Passover lamb, who's the substitute for his people, for the firstborn son. He's a suffering servant who dies for the transgression of his people. And yet I wonder if there's a swap happening the other way too. His righteousness is given to his people. Jesus' goodness, Jesus' innocence that John is so careful to show us, comes to us. Paul would put it later and say, well God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I wonder if that's another reason why the innocence matters is because it's passed on to us. If you imagine it's a bank balance, and if you imagine we have massive debt to God, we owe millions, we are, it's utterly unpayable, we are utterly bankrupt, we owe him our obedience and our lives and our all, and yet at best he's a footnote, at best he's just an afterthought. And it's not just that Jesus comes and pays that debt for us and says we're no longer at minus a million but at zero. No, no, because his righteousness comes to us too. And so our balance picks up. And God looks at his people and he sees his son and his righteousness and his obedience, his innocence. He gets our sin, our debt that's dealt with and we get his righteousness. That's oversimplification of things. The New Testament will talk much more about it, it being a relationship, it being much more organic. So as we trust in Christ, then his innocence comes to us. Which means if you're a Christian here this evening, that you can rest. It seems to me that Christians often end up being the most busy and stressed and exhausted people whom I know. Because rather than coming to Christ and knowing that they're restored and in a relationship with God, actually we scurry around and we cram our weeks full of stuff and we're busy and we get on rotors and we do things and then we get bitter when nobody else does. It's almost as if we're trying to earn it. Almost as if we're trying to add to it or to justify it. To show God how lucky he is to have us. And yet it's done because the innocent Passover lamb, the the suffering servant, has died. And so we are forgiven. We can rest. So we follow an innocent king. And yet the Jewish leaders, as we saw last week, are utterly blinded by preconceptions and prejudice. And they can only be happy in this ending in death. Why? Well, verse 7. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Which again immediately terrifies Pilate. And he scurries back in to see Jesus to interrogate him further. It shows us who's in charge. Pilate might be wearing the earthly royal crown. But you know, Jesus has the real authority. That is completely explicit and clear in verse 8 to 11. We see that we follow, forgive my alliteration, an in-control king. Let me read them again. Verse 8. 
When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus says, there is a source of all power, of all authority. It is a delegated authority that Pilate has. It might look as if Pilate's in control, but looks can be deceptive. Had Jesus wanted to, he could have escaped there and then. He could have gone from death. He did back in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 10. Let me read them to you. 7 verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Uh, 8 verse 20. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. 10 verse 39. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. But you see, now his hour has come. This is where it's been going. It may look as if Pilate's in control, but in fact it's the opposite. It may look as if Pilate's in control, but actually he doesn't even have control over his own actions. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be, king oppose, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate struts and he parades onto the... Uh, onto the stage of human power, and actually he's enslaved by the political threats of his opponents. When, when truth is gone, as we saw last week, then popularity and politics matter. I think the danger for the Christian is that we think, rather like Pilate, we are in control. And yet when we think we're in control, we soon realise that we're not. And so we have to manipulate and we have to control events or people to make things happen. Or or we bow to others and we trust them. We become slaves. Slaves to the majority opinion, slaves to the crowds, to the establishment, to, to the love of being accepted and popular. Slaves to the most persuasive argument. The fact is we're not free until we recognise that the Lord is King. Until we know that Jesus is in control. Rather than having to make things happen. And do you know what? If you actually believe that, it is incredibly liberating. It means we can trust him in everyday stuff. The sort of things that you worry about. It means that finally he's in charge. And so as you think about the future and you're not sure what's happening over the next five years... And that keeps you awake at night. Do you know what? You can trust him. Because he's in charge. It means as you worry about your job and that tricky relationship with your boss who seems to look down on you and you don't quite know how it'll turn out, do you know, you can trust him. Because he's in charge. As you stress about that broken friendship and you're not quite sure how it's going to be restored and you worry about it, do you know, you can trust him. Because he's in charge. It doesn't guarantee that it will turn out as perhaps you hope it might. That it might be painless. Just look at what's going to happen to Jesus over the next 24 hours. But the pattern of the Bible, the pattern of the cross is that God works through the hard times. Through the difficulties for our good, for his glory. To make us more like his son. To bring about his plans and his purposes. Because he's in control. 
that, that meeting this week that you're not looking forward to, that you're dreading. Do you know what? He's in control. He's working out everything for, for our good, for his glory. The hospital appointment that you're terrified of, he's in control. The phone call that you're putting off, make it, because he's in control. Even the authority that Pilate has, has been granted to him for a time. Because Jesus is in control. And so, as we saw last week, if you were glancing forward, finally, Pilate, the puppet, does what they want him to, and hands him on to be crucified. Which leads us to our last few verses. And I think it comes to a head both for Christ and for us, as we think through what these mean. I think verses 12 to 16 urge us to choose the right king. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And Pilate heard this. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. So finally, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. As you, as you read your Bible, it's one of the key pictures of discipleship, of, of living for God, if you like, is that of following by faith and not by sight. It doesn't mean as Christians we're simply sort of whistling in the dark, pretending it's all going to be okay, and when we know it's really not, or we're just making things up to make us feel better. No, no, following by faith, trusting faith, is to know, to trust what we know to be true, rather than perhaps what we feel, or even what we see at that point. And at the heart of these verses, 12 to 16, you see something of that tension, the, the need for us to choose the right king. We might expect it to. It seems to be, to me, the focus, the climax of the Bible. It's all been looking towards here. Uh, This is where God is revealed very clearly. We see something of his character, and so we might expect key doctrines, key truths to be quite clear as well. I think you see stuff there in glorious technicolour. You see discipleship in these verses. The nature of true faith. The nature of false faith. People choosing to follow a king whose power they can tangibly see and they can bow to. Rather than a king whose power for a time is less obvious. It's very clear in verse 12 with Pilate. It's clear in 15 with the chief priests. They choose Caesar rather than Jesus. That is the stark choice at the climax of the passage. To follow Caesar, the Roman boss, the top of the tree, the obvious, tangible ruler of the time, or to follow Jesus, an innocent man about to be murdered. So as a Christian, as you reach that fork in the road and you have that decision to make, 
You have a choice to go your way or to go God's way. To follow Caesar or to follow Jesus. Which, which one do you choose? Maybe it's simply that you doubt God's way makes sense. Perhaps it's not panned out as you might have hoped. And so you're wanting to manipulate things or to just, you know, follow Caesar or follow Jesus. Maybe you're struggling to live as a Christian. Maybe there are pressures, maybe it's hard. And you say, well, just for a bit, maybe life would be more satisfying if I just put Jesus on the back burner for a while. It wouldn't hurt that much. Do you follow Caesar or Jesus? Maybe it is the workplace. It's the culture of your workplace. And it's very easy to cut corners, to bend the truth, to just go for the odd white lie, to fiddle expenses, because everyone else is doing it. And yet, do you follow Caesar or Jesus? Maybe you're without a spouse. And you've begun to question whether well, only marrying a Christian is sensible. So people tell me, but I'm not sure. Do you follow Caesar or Jesus? Maybe you're just getting tired of generosity and hospitality and having to serve the whole time. And you think, I'd rather just be a bit more selfish. I just need a bit more me time. I just want to cut myself off from those around just for a bit. And I say, do you follow Caesar or do you follow Jesus? Or whatever it is for you, whatever that, that battle is that you're hit with. This isn't the script I hoped for, you say. Do you follow Caesar or Jesus? Well, look around the world and we see suffering churches, even today, places like Nigeria, in the news recently again. How tempting it must be to just turn away from this Jesus guy who seems to have deserted them and to follow just the God of respectability. A God who's a bit less dangerous, a bit more tangible, who might look after us and bow to Caesar. And living for Caesar, following Caesar, may well be more gratifying. It may well make sense in the immediate. And living for Jesus can be less sensible. And yet our ultimate focus as Christians is not on the here and now. Our ultimate priority is not like our friends around us. And it just strikes me as I read this passage, well, which king do we follow? It's a great question to ask ourselves wherever we might be in the Christian life. Who am I following? The crowds and the officials and Pilate, they all got it wrong. They all go for Caesar, the obvious king. They miss who Jesus is. They miss his power and control. They miss that he's worth following. Jesus says to us, follow the king. Sorry, John says to us, follow the king who is innocent. He's innocent and so your sin can be dealt with forever. He's innocent so you can be made truly righteous. John says, follow this king who is in control, even when it looks like he's not. Trust that he is. John says, follow the right king. And yet when we don't, when we get it wrong, when we go for Caesar, when we go for self, then remember again that we follow a king who is innocent. Remember what his death achieved. Remember that when we muck up, he went to the cross for people like us, people like me, 
People like you, people who perpetually get it wrong, who perpetually run after the Caesars. Remember that his innocence, his righteousness, is now ours.